Eric Shesky's Weekly You Demon. Culture, society, drinking, philosophy, religion. He's never out of his element. So sit back with a sarsaparilla and enjoy. We've all heard this saying. Life is hard. And you know, it's, it's not just a saying. It's, it's a fact. We constantly struggle. Pain is frequent. And even when we don't have pain or struggle, we worry about it. We have a constant threat of it hanging over our heads. Any moment now, catastrophe could hit us. And on top of that, we have death waiting for us at the end. <laughs> and during life, we have all sorts of little deaths. Screw-ups, sins, things we regret. So I, I'd say, I wouldn't say this life is hard. I would say existence is hard. The very fact we exist is hard. As like a philosopher might say, to be is hard. This is where Gnosticism comes in. Okay, this is a little... A little detour here. I'm afraid I've been a bit coy <laughs> when introducing and talking about Gnosticism. I think I hit it pretty hard in episode 61 by saying Gnosticism is Christianity's evil twin. But in case I wasn't quite clear, let me be as blunt as possible about this. Because we're going to be hitting Gnosticism probably throughout 2020. I think it's going to be a common theme. Anyway, let me be very, very clear. Gnosticism is a fake religion. Okay, ersatz religion is how one mega thinker described it. Yeah, I, I can uh, hear the multiculturalists scoffing now. Shesky, one religion is as good as another. I can hear the uh, atheist multiculturalists scoffing. Shesky, one religion is as good as another because they're all fakes. <laughs> I can even hear them refer to me as a POS. So vivid is my, my power of imagination. Okay, here's the thing. You can roughly divide religions into two types. Compact and differentiated. Compact religion is roughly speaking primitive. It's a world full of gods. Zeus banging your wife. The totem pole, tree worship, stuff like that. Differentiated means d divinize. So it's the de-divinization of the world. We no longer have a world full of gods. And that's more advanced religions. This was, in short, the work of the Old Testament authors and the philosophers of ancient Greece. They located the divine creative force outside of the world, outside of the mundane. So through revelation and contemplation and Reasoning and contemplation, the Old Testament authors and the Greek philosophers removed divinity from the world and put it out there, you know, in the heavens, transcendent. There's an old saying that says, uh, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? I think it was Tertullian, one of the church fathers who later became a heretic, but, um, he said, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? His response is, well, they're both plumbing towards the same truths at about the same time. <laughs> one through revelation, one through contemplation. And the bottom line is, their writings and their thought were far more compelling on every level. The logical, the contemplative, the believable revelation, than the compact world of Thor and the Druids. And it carried the day for obvious reasons. It's not just a different religion. When you de-divinize the world, it, it just makes a lot more sense. 
and it's a big freaking deal on the existential level. You know, we started us off about three minutes ago saying existence is hard. And a lot of this is because we've lost that compact religion. You know, in a compact world of gods, people could take immediate comfort. If I placate the god of booze, I won't get a hangover. <laughs> if I read these goat entrails, I'll know what happens next week. In general, it's very comforting. Now, some anthropologists have pointed out that it was also a terrifying world for some people. You know, superstitions. People were, were scared of the, the slightest infraction that gods would punish them. And that when the Old Testament authors and then the Greek philosophers and then Christianity de-divinized the world, it was, a, it was a great relief in a lot of ways. But in general, though, a compact religious existence gives you a great deal of certainty, your feet on the ground, so to speak. And when mankind started waking up from this type of compact thinking, it was just disorientating. Because the result was they were standing in a weird position. The mundane beneath, transcendent above. It's like an in-between space. The greatest of the Greek philosophers, Plato, called it the metaxi. And that's the word you want to understand and remember. Metaxi. I'm not even positive I'm pronouncing it correctly. M-E-T-A-X-Y. It means like suspended between transcendence and mundane. It results in intense existential tension, and it's uncomfortable, to say the least. Some find it suicide-inducing. Some of us find it uh, gin and tonic-inducing. <laughs> okay. Now, combine this. You know, the Old Testament prophets, seeing that God is in the transcendent and articulated it more and more clearly. Plato fully articulating it after it had been unfolding in Greek philosophy. These thoughts coming into the mainstream, so to speak, as people began to see, yeah, you know, the Zeus myths really were just myths. No one really believes those anymore. Then combine that with the age of ecumenical empires we discussed in episode 61. Old Persian Empire, Alexander the Great. Huge population movements, villages destroyed, families torn apart. It's kind of like, hey, Plato, you effed with people's minds enough as it is. Then Alexander the Great effed with their bodies <laughs> by moving them all around. Huge enslavements, population shifts, things like that. And so it's no wonder that a thing called pneumopathological disorientation. <laughs> it sounds so cool when I say that. But basically a spiritual disease, a spiritual disorientation set in. People wanted security in a compact existence, whether it was, you know, feet on the ground with the gods, or at least feet on the ground in your, in your town, your village, or, or at the bar at Cheers, or where everyone knows your name. <laughs> People wanted that. It was all ripped apart. I was in the site and that Gnosticism first appeared. Cause here's the thing about Gnosticism that you need to know. It's the attempt to regain that footing. It's the attempt to get that compact religious experience that Moses, Plato, and Isaiah LLC destroyed. <laughs> and it was further fueled by the disruptions, you know, the bodily, the family disruptions of the, the age of ecumenical empires. You see, the, the Gnostic doesn't want to live in Plato's metaxi. And the militant Gnostic won't do it. He wants control. He wants certainty. And he sure as heck doesn't want that unpleasant existential tension. Because again, let's let's face it. 
living in a taxi is unpleasant. Now, it's a fact. <laughs> That's the problem with the Gnostic. It's like, look, I, I know it's unpleasant to live in the taxi. I realize it results in this existential tension that you have to deal with often through contemplation, uh, true religious practices, and, and such. But doesn't change the fact that it is. <laughs> Existence is hard. We do live in the metaxi. You have this transcendent calling, yet these mundane needs. But the Gnostic doesn't want it. Consciously or unconsciously, he wants it gone. And if you're suspended between two poles and you find that tension unpleasant, what's the easiest way to get rid of it? Just freaking lop off one pole. <laughs> if you're stretched out between two poles, you know, your, your arms tied to poles stretching you apart, if someone comes and takes one pole out, that tension's wiped out. And that's what the Gnostic does. He gets rid of one pole in order to eliminate the tension. And that's the key of what Gnosticism is. The ancient Gnostic eliminated the mundane pole. The common theme of ancient Gnosticism, the one that arose with Christianity, was this earth is created by an evil god. The Demurge or something like that. I forget how you pronounce it. D-E-M-I-U-R-G-E. But they said the evil, the, the evil god or an evil god created the world and it's like a prison that we have to escape and you escape it through gnosis. So everything on the, on the earth just doesn't even exist. So in that way, the Gnostic guy, the ancient Gnostic got rid of the tension by lopping off the mundane pole and focusing solely on the tr transcendent. Later Gnostics would flip it and they would eliminate the transcendent pole. And basically say, there is no higher calling, there is nothing higher, there's nothing up there. All you have is the world, let's just focus just on the world. And that's another way of getting rid of the tension. But both of them have the same psychological makeup, and that's what the real takeaway is. Well, I've had a couple of takeaways. All sorts of things for your, for your one thing file. <laughs> but that's like the true insight of some thinkers of the 20th century is like, and actually the thinkers even before the 20th century had this insight. But they said, you know, the, they're both Gnostics. You know, they, ha they have the same psychological makeup. They both have a spiritual disease, that pneumopathological disorientation. Or if you want a simpler term, just call it Gnosos. N-O-S-O-S. Alright, let's do some lightning segments. Hey, from that last segment, and I know I kind of threw a lot at you, but just try to remember two terms. Metaxi and Gnosis. Metaxi is Plato's term for man's existence between the transcendent and the mundane. Gnosis means spiritual disease. So put those two things in your one thing file. I don't think that's too oxymoronic. <laughs> and actually, let, let, me, let me throw out a little bit about Gnosis because I know people are interested in Prometheus. The term Gnosis is from the, from the ancient Greek playwright Aeschylus. It looks like Aeschylus, A-E-S-C-H-Y-L-U-S, Aeschylus. He first used the term Prometheus bound. So Prometheus had given man the gift of fire against Zeus's wishes, and Zeus is bound to a rock as punishment. Hermes, the god who we call Mercury in Roman mythology, he went down to calm him down because Prometheus is just pissed. I mean, he's writhing and angry. And Hermes is trying to calm him down, and Prometheus cries out, 
in a word, I hate all the gods. So Hermes responded, quote, It appears you've been stricken with no small madness, like Harvey Weinstein lying naked on a casting couch, unquote. Okay, well, I may not have gotten that exactly right, but that's basically what I said. Madness here, as used by Hermes, means nosos, hatred of the gods, or maybe dominated by one's passions, but either way, a spiritual disease. So that comes from Prometheus Bound, which I know has like an enduring interest people, so I thought I may tie that tie it back for you. And also you can you can whip that one out the bar when you're trying to pick up chicks, I'll really impress them. You won't you won't need to pin them down with sumo wrestling moves and Hollywood contracts. <laughs> you can get them the natural way by impressing them with your knowledge of Greek literature. Did you see Scotland is apparently running out of Pete? And it's the secret ingredient of their whiskey. The government is shutting down the bogs and making it hard to open bogs. They want to keep the peat sustainable, which which I don't understand. I remember I have a friend who's really into the environmental movement, really into it, held down some official positions. And I asked him about peat one time because I use a lot of peat moss in my gardening. And he's just like, I don't know when it's gone, it's gone. I mean, <laughs> I think his point is I'm not even sure what we use it for. I know he sure as hell don't want to burn peat. I mean... If you think coal is dirty, try burning peat for warmth like the Scottish used to do. That stuff is absolutely filthy. But anyway, right now the government's shutting down peat bogs. Now I can't imagine the, the Scots going to take this <laughs> line down. I mean, they've been lying down drunk for a long freaking time. But maybe this will this will wake up the Scots from their welfare-induced drunken torpor. Here's the thing about Scotland, and I, goodness knows, I am no expert when it comes to Scotland, but it seems to me Great Britain has wrecked that freaking country. <laughs> I mean, this really was a land of genius. I gather Presbyterian, but hey, there are still geniuses. <laughs> I mean, David Hume, Adam Smith, the Scottish Enlightenment. Really impressive stuff. But my take is Britain, through the welfare programs, have allowed the Scots to languish, making them dependent on the state, making them lazy. And I'd point out the exact same criticism some black thinkers like Walter Williams have leveled against the welfare state in the United States. They say this ruined the black communities. <laughs> the Scots in Great Britain and the blacks in the United States, they have a lot in common. And it ain't skin color. <laughs> so if you're an, if you're a true racist and you think like skin color makes you inferior, I'd respectfully suggest you look at Scotland. You see a lot of the same thing going on. The Scots, they, they ain't black. <laughs> These are government policies that wreck, wreck people. So it's, not a, it's not a skin color thing. It's, it's a government thing. Hey, remember my discussion about bang? You know, 300 milligrams of caffeine. I've drank it twice in my life. One time I started off with a shot glass and sipped it. And then I had one a couple weeks ago. I drank it over the course of two days. I didn't want too much caffeine in one day. So I'm listening to Melissa Chen on Joe Rogan. And <laughs> she's just like, kind of like, she said, oh, I'm not sure, like, my heart's flooded. I forget, <laughs> I forget how she put it. But she mentioned that she had drank two cans of Bang. And that she only weighs 105 pounds. <laughs> I saw later on her Twitter feed that they actually had to stop taping for 20 minutes. while <laughs> She got her composure. Ah, uh, you crazy millennials. I, I tell you what, though, she seems like a uh, delightful young lady. I hope she doesn't kill, her, kill herself with the caffeine. 
Her her big thing is translating English works into Arabic and making them available in Muslim countries. She thinks she thinks just through reading Western literature, you know, the Arabs would become much more westernized, forward thinking, get away from the Islamic fundamentalism that really is a great scourge to our world. She threw out some crazy stat. I think it's something like more works are translated from English to Spanish in a year than have been translated from English to Arabic in the history of mankind. <laughs> something ridiculous like that. This is, is just unbelievable. I also know that's like a favorite theme of Thaddeus Russell. He said, you know, Western entertainment will convert the Muslim world faster than bombs and, and military. Just get our just get our literature, get our entertainment, get it get it over to the Muslim countries and and they themselves will have like a, a groundswell of support. Because we Yeah, our, our entertainment's debased, don't get me wrong. I mean I can't stand Disney. I mean I, I mean I think Disney is a is a great scourge on society. Yeah, Islamic fundamentalism and Disney. <laughs> two two great evils of the world today. I'm exaggerating by the way. But uh, from an artisan standpoint, you know, from a performance standpoint, from the exacting artistic standards that we demand of our entertainers, it's pretty freaking good. I mean, there's a reason it's so appealing. Because these people are very, very talented. Again, I hate a lot of pop culture, but there's huge money riding on it, and the producers are demanding, and they crank out some good stuff. I tell you what, the gods love irony. There's increasing anecdotal evidence that porn is killing the penis. <laughs> true, true story. Heard it on the radio. Did some Google searches, and sure enough, uh, more and more doctors are reporting. You know, psychologists, social workers, whatever. You know, I hope that social workers, but <laughs> sociologists, whatever. They're reporting that more and more young men are reporting that. They can't get an erection, and they watch a ton of porn. And it's like just the the command economy <laughs> that that your body goes through with porn basically makes your penis not want to perform anymore. By the way, erectile dysfunction that that's probably the the funniest names for a medical condition ever. <laughs> but I, I mentioned my blog. I said I have, I have little doubt that. The porn industry is going to start funding their own quote-unquote studies <laughs> to debunk the anecdotal evidence because that's the last thing they want out there. Porn can kill your marriage. <laughs> it can it can make you go blind. <laughs> it can wreck your kids, and you're going to keep watching it. But if it's going to kill the penis, nah, now they got some serious problems. They like said the guys love their irony. So I, I have a little doubt the porn industry is going to fund its own studies. You know, things like um, porn makes the penis larger. <laughs> Top scientists say women attracted to men who masturbate. Surveys show women favor men who fantasize about other women. Sexologists says porn make men better at technical skills. <laughs> Those are going to be the studies that the porn industry is going to start funding. It's like, never believe studies anymore. I mean, we know that they're just borderline fraudulent. So, for instance, have you heard about the paper towel wars? Hand dryers, you know, the, the blow ones that want to blow hot air on them. 
they're they're getting really really good these days so the paper towel manufacturers they funded studies that basically said hey when those hand blowers go they're spreading feces all over the bathroom <laughs> little feces particles you can't see and they they funded these studies and it is all it's all it's all farce and there is evidence that it's happening but i guess it happens when you flush a toilet too i mean it's, it happens all the time so the, the idea that this the hand blowers are causing problems with feces or blowing feces all over you, which is just really freaking gross. I mean, when I first read that study a couple of years ago, it was just like I wouldn't go in the bathroom if, that, <laughs> if there was a blower going and not realize how I was tricked. It's just a big corporation funding bogus studies to prop up their bottom line. So anyway, when you see the study that says porn makes your penis bigger, you don't believe it. Alright, let's do our first year from the 10 Years You Should Remember podcast last week. So we're starting with the year 1300 BC. Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. Okay, now I'm not going to recount the biblical narrative. But actually it doesn't differ a whole lot from the professional story narrative. Although, as I mentioned last week, a lot of it's uncertain. Many historians don't even think Moses existed. We don't know if it's 1300... 1218, whatever. But here's what we do know. We know that Semites have been migrating to Egypt for over a thousand years. They usually came as workers, driven by hunger. Some came as slaves, you know, they're captured and brought as slaves. Some came as workers, but then became slaves. That we know. Now, by the time of Moses, we're dealing with the third and last great Egypt kingdom. There is the Old Kingdom, the one that built the pyramids. Then there was a Middle Kingdom, and then there's this one, what historians call the New Kingdom. And we know Ramesses II was the pharaoh at the time of Moses, and he was a he was a great builder. He lived from 1304 to 1237. In order to build these great public projects, he had to crack the proverbial whip, <laughs> and the whip most often fell across the back of the Semites. And they revolted and they fled. That's Exodus. Okay, that's Moses. He was a leader of the Israelite revolt. So whether Moses exists or not, that's what he stands for. So then Moses took the Israelites to the border of Egypt, but he didn't live long enough to go in. And then his military leader, Joshua, took over. And under him, the Israelites beat back the Canaanites, the people who were living in the Promised Land or living in Palestine. And that conquest took over 200 years. You don't necessarily get that feeling from the Bible, but yeah, it took, took a long time. It took over 200 years. But by 1,000, the Promised Land was completely retaken. The Jews had taken Israel. But in the process of taking it over, their, their ongoing success, they were threatened mortally by people called the Philistines. Okay, now, <laughs> these guys were freaking bastards. They are almost certainly the most predatory peoples of the 1000s BC, you know, say from 1000 BC to 2000 BC. <laughs> the Egyptians just call them the peoples of the sea. They're basically the Vikings of the 1000s BCs, but they were, <laughs> they were swarthy, not pale, you know, dark, dark skinned. And they're a mystery to history. We just know the, these sons of bitches, they're just like coming on their ships, rape and pillage, and then leave. They're highly, highly destructive. Again, just 
just seemed like just this real bastards. Never built anything of their own. They just came, took, and left. Well, at one point, apparently, they invaded Egypt. And Egypt, even though it was on its last decline, it was no longer the greatest of the ancient um, kingdoms, the Egyptians under Ramesses III threw them out and were able to repel them. And a handful of them went up and settled on the Israel coast, and they're the Philistines. And these people knew how to fight. They liked to fight. That, that's all they did. They, they never did anything constructive. They just fought and pillaged. That's what the Israelites had to deal with. And so, in response, they got rid of their old system of having separate tribes and judges, and they elected their first king, or got their first king, I should say, not, not elected. They got their first king, which was Saul. That was around the year 1000. It's like, hey, we did, we have this stuff, great stuff going on. <laughs> we, we got this country going, and now we got this Philistine threat coming in, and we need to unite, and we're going to unite under Saul. After Saul came David, after David came Solomon. Solomon died in 926, and the country split into two countries, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Israel fell to the Assyrians in 721. The Assyrians were the greatest empire before the old Persian Empire. And then Judah fell to the Babylonians in 586. And that takes us to next week's episode. Hey, Jesse, you're not a Jew? Did nothing else happen in this period? Well, <laughs> yeah, a lot of stuff happened, but for purposes of understanding Western civilization, nothing nearly as important as what I just recounted. <laughs> what I just told you is the most important thing that happened, or those are the most important things that happened during that 500-year gap or 600-year gap from 1200 to 586. But, yeah, some of the things were happening in Western civilization that would help give you a firmer grasp of history. First off, we already touched on one of them. By starting at 1300 BC, you know the greatest first civilization, Egypt, was in its third and its last flowering. Okay, so there you got, you got that. It's not just a Jewish thing, you also got the Egyptian thing. We also touched on the greatest of the old empires before the old Persian Empire, the, the Empire of Assyria. Now, I'd like to report on Rome. That's like one of my favorite topics, but they're really not on the map yet. Now, I will point out, though, somewhere between the fall of Israel in 721 and the fall of Judah in 586, Rome did start. It was still a kingdom, but it had started. But we don't know anything about it. We just know it existed. And it was a kingdom. It wasn't even a republic yet. Very, very small. Now, one of my other favorite topics, Greece, there is a little bit more to report. Which shouldn't surprise you, because Greece predated Rome, so we do have some Greek history during this time period. But, again, it's all going to be shrouded in mystery and myth. For those of you who like Greek mythology, when you hear Moses, think Hercules. <laughs> you know, both might be mythological figures. And again, I don't think Moses was. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm talking from an historical perspective. Don't if <laughs> if, you, if you're a Christian, believes in the literal interpretation of the Bible. Uh, don't don't turn off the podcast. Uh, I'm just telling you. I'm trying to take an historical perspective. What historians are saying, not what the Sunday school teachers are saying. Okay. I respect what the Sunday school teachers are saying, but that's not what I'm doing here today or these next, the nine episodes after this. So anyway, Moses was approximately the time of the Greek heroic age. So when you hear Moses, you're thinking what else was going on? 
around this 1300, 1200 BC, you could think Jason and the Argonauts, Perseus, Hercules. If those figures existed at all, and they probably did in some watered-down form, they lived prior to Moses and during the life of Moses. The heroic age was kind of winding down at the time Moses was rising up, so to speak. When Joshua slammed into the Promised Land and started taking it over from the Canaanites in the 1200s, that's probably when the Trojan War was going. To think Joshua? Achilles. Again, roughly, roughly, roughly. Just a couple miles north of the Promised Land, <laughs> where uh, the Israelites were slaughtering the Canaanites, you have, up the coast, you have Greeks slaughtering Trojans, and, and vice versa, the Trojans put up a hell of a fight. And by the way, if you believe that, you, and you want to know about the Fountain of Rome, keep in mind that there's two, there's two histories about the Fountain of Rome, or two legends. One is a Romulus and a Remus, you know, nursed by a, by a she-wolf. The other one is the Aeneid, that Aeneas, a Trojan, escaped with a handful of men from the burning of Troy, after the Trojan horse, you know, came in and the Greeks were able to take, take Troy, that he fled and he founded Rome, which had put the Fountain of Rome I think way too freaking early, probably put it based on archaeological evidence of when the Battle of Troy happened, if it happened at all, put it way too early, but there you have it. Now, at about the time that Israel fell to the Assyrians in 721, we have Hesiod and Homer writing the stories. Now, at this point, you're, you're, you're really getting more into much more solid history. So around the 8th century BC, again, 721 is when Israel fell to Assyria, that's when Homer is writing his works. As the Babylonian menace grew, I mean, Judah didn't fall to Babylon in one year. Babylon was a growing menace. And during that growing menace, you had Draco was a lawgiver of Athens. And he was kind of a tyrant, or a really, really harsh lawgiver, I should say. We still have the term draconian to, <laughs> to describe things that are really harsh. Well, that was... Right before, that was like around 600 BC, right before Judah fell to the Babylonians. Then after him came Solon. He was like the wise lawgiver of Athens. He was right there when he was in charge when Judah fell to Israel. I believe you can trace Solon back and say Solon was in charge of Athens at the time Judah was falling to the Babylonians. And about this time, you have the birth of Western philosophy. Thales, T-H-A-L-E-S, is usually considered the father of Western philosophy, and he was born during this time period. All right, so again, you got those 10 years. Try to give you a framework. Now we're trying to flush it out. We tried to flush out today from a little bit before 1300 to around 586 B.C. Next, next week, we'll take it the next step. All right, that's a wrap. Hey, big news. The Weekly Demon has an Instagram page. <laughs> I don't know how to work it. There's not a lot going on there, but... Shout out to my youngest daughter who settled up for me. She's really into Instagram, and she assured me I should have a page. So I said, hey, sounds good to me. You may want to check out the uh, the blog. It's going very well. I'm writing about four columns a week, including the popular Brews You Can Use or Friday Drinking Matters column. There's, there's two blog sites if you haven't figured out yet. The Daily Demon, which has been around since 2004. And then you have like a simulcast blog <laughs> over at demonpodcast.com. They're virtually identical. Uh, different pictures, different titles, and 
Again, not quite the same. I'd say the Daily Demon is a little bit better still, although I want to get more and more shoved over to the other site, thedemonpodcast.com. But anyway, it is active. Uh, I'm having trying to do a daily column Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then some small things here and there. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>